0: Well, hello, and welcome back to the My Maya Senior Podcast. As always, my name is Jesse, and today we have a very special episode. We have another, what turned out to be a very incredible interview with Sheila, who is a member of the MG community. So I am really excited to uh, share her story here on the podcast. Uh, so that will be coming up in just a minute. But if you are listening to this live, meaning when it comes out, we have officially launched the Make Your Year MG Strong Activity Challenge. So if you are interested in doing that again, it is a monthly challenge where you will set your own goals and using the uh, activity tracker notebook that we send to you, you will be able to check off and complete your goal uh, however you choose to do so. If you would like to also join our Facebook group, you will be able to interact with the, the community members who are also participating in the challenge and they will be able to cheer you on and you will be able to cheer them on. I fully anticipate there are going to be people who decide that they are going to set the same goals as others, that event is live. You can register and uh, get your goodies over at our uh, website, mymyasthenia.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at the My Myasthenia Podcast uh, Facebook group. So if you are interested in doing it, it is officially live now. You can also pick yourself up some goodies on our website if you are interested. Full disclosure, the hoodies and sweatshirts and stuff that we are selling, I have set the profit to zero dollars and zero cents. So the cost of the hoodies and the cost of the shirts and everything, they are completely uh, no profit to me. It is a a print-on-demand service that we are using. So if you would like to pick it up, no pressure whatsoever. Anyway, so we are going to jump right into our episode And I can think of no better music to use as our intro to the interview than Sheila's very own music But let's go ahead and jump right into our interview with Sheila Alright, well, hello Sheila, how are you doing today?
1: Well, it's great. It's December, but it's bright and sunny. So I'm sitting outside my house and soaking up the rays.
0: Awesome. I wish I could do that. It's raining out here right now, but we're in Arizona, so I guess I shouldn't really complain. That doesn't happen too often. <laughs> so Sheila, you have a kind of an interesting story. You've had myasthenia for about 11 years. You were kind of the same age as me. I think I was 27 when I got diagnosed. You were 29. So very similar. And that's kind of rare because, again, myasthenia usually starts a little bit later in life. So do you want to just kind of explain how yours got started and just tell your story?
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, I actually started having symptoms when I was 27 and it took me a couple of years before I ended up getting diagnosed. So mine started right around 27 and what my neurologist eventually told me, I'm skipping ahead, is that it's very common for women to develop myasthenia gravis in their childbearing years. So oh. she told me that eventually I learned that. But you know, my, my symptoms started out, I was living in Los Angeles and my husband and I, he wasn't my husband then, but we lived on a second floor apartment and we liked to go biking. I biked all around LA and mm-hmm. I started noticing that, like, I didn't feel safe carrying my bike up to the second floor. Hmm. And I just was like, you know, I have a lot of, like, nerve pain and disc issues. And so I'm like, oh, did I, like, pinch a nerve? Like, why isn't my leg working? Right. It was this I would go for the bike ride. And as you know, with myasthenia, when you get back from exercising, that's when you're fatigued. And so. I could carry it down the stairs. I could go for the bike ride, but then I'd get home and I, so, you know, I just was like, oh, this is kind of annoying. So I asked my boyfriend at the time to just carry it up the stairs for me. So -hmm. that was like the first thing I noticed. And then when, when my husband Jay turned 30, so I was 27, we went to Joshua Tree National Park. We wanted to, he Mm -hmm. was turning 30 and he didn't like it. So we escaped off into the forests of (laughs) Joshua Tree california and we went camping and we did this big hike we did like a four mile hike and we got to the top of the mountain and on the way down i just started noticing that like i couldn't step down or i would fall you know it's Mm. like this very strange sensation like oh this doesn't feel safe like i could fall down so yeah. he stood in front of me, and I would hold his shoulder. So we we finished the hike, and I got down, and and that was that. And that and I I'll always remember that I was twenty seven because you know we're three years apart. It was his thirtieth birthday, and we were in Joshua Tree, and it was like this incredible day of hiking. But I just something you know I had pushed the muscles so far that something was up, and so you know later that. It, it, it just kind of kept going like that. It, it wasn't major, you know. I, I didn't really understand what it was. But little things would happen. Like, my, my family likes to play Ultimate Frisbee. So maybe the mm-hmm. next summer, I was playing Ultimate Frisbee with my family. And I was running around. And I went to go reach for the Frisbee. And before I could catch it, my leg gave out on me and I fell down. And... No. You know, everybody laughed because I'm not the like physically fit one in the family. I have like young sisters who are much faster and and more agile than me. So everybody was just like, oh, Sheila falls down when she plays frisbee. Like, but I knew something was weird. Like I went to run on it and then it would just give out on me. Similar Mm. thing started happening when I would go out dancing. So my sister and I like to go out dancing in the clubs. And I had this one signature dance move I would do where I would like bend backwards like I was limboing, you know, and Mm kind of like rock side to side. And I would be doing my move and my leg muscle would just give out on me and I would fall all the way to the ground. So that was when I'm like, huh, okay, something is up. Like I can't, I can't go down the stairs. I can't, you know, hike. I can't, Wow! I can't run, I can't dance. Like I'm like something's up. So, right. Fast forward a couple of years, my husband and I move across country, and um, you know, we start adjusting. We're we're hiking in in um the Grand Canyon, and I got we got me sticks. We're like, okay, well, you need poles if you're gonna hike. Mm-hmm. Like you need something to press your weight against so that you can step down confidently. So I hiked in the Grand Canyon with poles and you know, we didn't go very far. It was like, let's not do the down all the way up, all the way down overnight pack hike, you know, let's do less. But when mm-hmm. I lived in Los Angeles, I didn't have any health insurance. I was only 28. I was otherwise completely healthy. So I just didn't have health insurance. And this was all before Obamacare, like preexisting conditions mm-hmm. were a problem. Like, right. so right. I, We move across country to New York State, and I randomly get a job babysitting for these two doctors who are hiking, or not hiking, they're mountain climbing. You know, they're doing Mm -hmm. rope climbing in New Paltz, where the amazing Gunk Mountains are. So they want me to nanny their two toddlers while they do the climbing. So I'm like, oh, perfect. You know, I love being outside. I love nature. You know, this is great. I had just moved to the area and I didn't have any other jobs. So I'm like, great, let me do this. So as I'm babysitting these toddlers, you know, I'm noticing that, like, I don't feel safe holding the babies and walking. Mm. Like, I feel like, ooh, I'm going to fall if I'm, you know, if I, if I catch my foot on a rock, like, I might fall down. So right. I'm scooting on my butt holding these kids. Like, I don't feel safe. Carrying them in the air. And the doctors are noticing this and they're like, hey, what's going on? Like, why can't you walk down the road, you know? And so, I mean, I was so fortunate that I met these two doctors because I think it would have been that maze labyrinth that people talk about. You know, I heard Mm -hmm. in some of your other podcast episodes, it sounded horrible. And my symptoms were so mild, like, you know, I didn't have anything. And I've never had anything close to a myasthenic crisis. I've never been hospitalized. But just those basic activities of life have been really impacted for me. So anyway, they're watching me scoot around and he's an ER, you know, infectious disease doctor. And she's, you know, they work in hospitals, so they know all the things Mm -hmm. that might happen. And They said to me, you need to see a neurologist. That was their exact words. And I said, oh, really? They're like, yeah, something's going wrong with your muscles and your nerves. Like, you know, you should definitely see a neurologist. So once again, I had no health insurance. (laughs) And the other symptom that I had was that I couldn't get up from the ground. So I would get Mm -hmm. down on the ground to, you know, work on some kind of craft project And I just couldn't get up from the ground without grabbing something and pushing myself with my arm muscles. So I went to this free clinic in New York City because I had no health insurance. I went to this free clinic and I show this clinic doctor like, hey, I can't get up from the ground. What do you think? So I show him how I can't get up. And he's like, yeah, this is not really like a free clinic type of problem. And he, right. he said, you know, you should really get health insurance first and then figure out what's going wrong because if you don't, you know, this was once again pre-existing conditions would have been a problem. So, mm-hmm. we finally close on our house that we bought and I had like an address in New York state and New York state had an insurance program for like, you know, young working professionals that I could, you know, be part of that program so I finally get my health insurance and so I'm like, okay, So I make an appointment with the local neurology department in the town near me. This is not a Mm -hmm. big, fancy city. You know, we're just kind of in upstate New York. But magically, the woman who specializes in myasthenia gravis for like the whole region is at this Mm -hmm. clinic. And I I don't see her the first time. I see her on my second appointment. But within two appointments they have diagnosed me with myasthenia gravis. Wow. And my husband didn't come with me to the appointment where she did the electros, the EM, you know, where they... The EMG. The EMG, where they stimulate your muscles. And -hmm. at that point, I had been operating on these fatigued muscles for years with like no treatment, no mestinon, nothing. And so it was so painful that, yeah it was so painful because she would stimulate the muscle to fatigue and it was just excruciating. And I remember weeping at the appointment thinking like, why didn't I bring my husband with me? Like, why am I oh, alone? No. Why am I alone? You know?
0: So I'll just quickly hop in and just say to people that are listening, that is the single fiber EMG. So there's two different types. The EMG is one where they kind of stick the diodes on your head. That one doesn't hurt at all. So if they want to do that one, that one's not painful, but the single fiber can be painful. So just keep that. I've never had it, but it sounds like from everybody I've talked to, it's not a very pleasant test that they do, but it, it can diagnose MG almost right away. So yeah, it sounds like that was a good test for you to have, but I'm, so, I'm sorry but, that it hurts so bad. I,
1: well, and just that I was alone, you know, I think that that mm-hmm. for me has like been my big feeling during this whole process of having myasthenia gravis is that, you know, I'm somebody who has an invisible disease. Mm-hmm. It's totally invisible to anyone. Like you just can't tell by looking at me that I'm like yeah. disabled yeah. in any way.
0: Right. He- it's it's funny you say that. I just saw a post, I think it was last night, but there was I guess some airport is now doing something called the sunflower card where they'll give you a lanyard that says sunflower on it. And I guess that's to signify now people that have invisible conditions. So I haven't done any sort of research on that, but I guess there's some new initiative out there where they're trying to allow people to highlight that so that they aren't discriminated against, you know, for having these invisible conditions. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing, just a little relevant.
1: Yeah. Like when I was pregnant, so I've had two pregnancies since my diagnosis and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, during, I can't remember if it was both of them or just one of them. I was in a wheelchair for part of it, just for events. You know, like if I want to go to a concert, I cannot stand for, you know, two to three hours or three to four hours. And so here I am like being pushed around in this wheelchair but then I'll stand up and dance for like maybe mm-hmm. three minutes. And it's this moment where I'm like, well, I don't want to feel like I have to sit in a wheelchair the whole time, you know, right. like, but yet I and need I'm sure it.
0: you get all sorts of looks from everybody. They're like, what the heck is this person doing, know, you know, cutting I, the line or whatever. So yeah. I've had
1: to just really kind of like, just accept that it's invisible and like no one can mm-hmm. see it. And so. I want to go back to the getting the diagnosis because what Mm -hmm. that did was it gave me Mestinon. Right. You know, once I knew what I had, then there's this treatment that is pretty safe and pretty, you know, in, you know, it doesn't really, the only side effects I have from it are like muscle tension. You know, the muscles Mm -hmm. that are strong don't need the overstimulation. (laughs) So I get like cramps in my calves and cramps here and there, but nothing terrible. And, And when I was, you know, first diagnosed and I got the medicine, I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, I'm I felt pretty normal again. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt pretty normal again with limitations, you know, like I couldn't do everything, but I could do most things. And, you know, due to some family stuff happening in my life at the time, I pretty much kind of, I think, completely delayed all the grief. All mm-hmm. the processing of, like, I have a chronic illness that will, you know, like, potentially never go away. And, you know, they did the the scan of my thymus at the time, and it wasn't inflamed in any way. So, you know, since I hadn't had any children yet, and, and I was maybe, you know, probably going to try to get pregnant, my doctor said, no, no need to do that surgery now, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where there's any complications. You know, she keeps telling me, and I still have the same neurologist. You know, you have a mild case. You have a mild case. She constantly right. tells me that, and and I'm and I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, it doesn't feel mild to me. And when I was listening to uh, I forget his name with the pennies, the hundred pennies. Oh, Sean. Sean. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! Oh. When I was listening to him talk about the pennies, I literally just burst into tears and I started weeping. Be- yeah. Because. Living for 11 or 12 years without enough pennies mm-hmm. and having kids and feeling like like the number of times that I just feel like I'm letting everyone in my life down because I don't have any more energy left. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's been just so emotionally trying.
0: Yeah. So let me hop in just in case anybody hasn't listened to the episode with Sean. That was, I think, episode two or three. It was early. But basically, Sean has a metaphor which he uses to explain MG to people, where he basically says, you have to imagine waking up with a stack of 100 pennies. And from that point forward, everything that you do, you have to give out some of your pennies. um, And basically, every activity costs you money. And at the end of the day, if you have no more pennies left, or if you do something that uses 80 of your pennies, like running or something, then you have nothing left for the basic activities. And, you you know, basically you have to reserve your pennies and pick and choose the things that you want to do, because if you end the day with nothing, you know, that's a problem. So I I highly recommend listening to his story as well on that episode. But that's the metaphor that we're talking about is basically the pennies are, are a metaphor for spending energy with with MG. But just to explain in case people hadn't to listened to that one.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, and that resonated with me so strongly because. Oh,
0: absolutely. I've started using it almost every day now. <laughs> so thank you again to Sean for that one because yeah. it, it is a great way to explain it.
1: Yeah. Like in, you know, like right now I'm I'm being a stay at home mom purposefully because mm-hmm. I felt like I was giving all my energy to my job. And as much as I liked working and having a career and having an income, you know, having two incomes in our family, mm-hmm. I would come home from work and just sit on the couch, just completely spent from being at yeah. work all day, you know, and I don't work on my feet, but I just, the energy of, you know, thinking and just, right. it's interesting to me. I feel like with myasthenia for me, even though it's a physical physical weakness i also get that kind of like uh just like the well of gumption is gone you know Mm -hmm. it's like it's like it's like an energetic fatigue as well where you know you think you want to do something and then you just kind of sigh and oh well that's not gonna happen Mm -hmm. yeah
0: the fatigue is is muscular but it's also mental i mean it drains you so much knowing you know, that everything you have to do, you have to think about. And it is a very mentally heavy condition as well.
1: Yeah. So, you know, my my disease took a turn for the worse during my second mm-hmm. pregnancy. And, you know, it coincided with a really intense grief experience. One of my closest family members, you know, died suddenly and unexpectedly. And mm-hmm. the combination of grieving her and being pregnant and having a chronic illness and pushing through and working. You mm-hmm. know, after my baby was born, I just felt like my symptoms got so bad, so much worse than they, that they had ever been. And once again, it, you know, it wasn't like I'm in a crisis. I'm not rushing to the hospital, but mm-hmm. I'm napping like every single day after dinner. I'm mm-hmm. I'm looking at my husband and my kids when they're going outside to play and I'm like, you know what? I have to take a nap. Like every Mm -hmm. weekend I'm napping when they're playing. Mm -hmm. So there just came this energy around the house like, wow, like when am I ever going to be myself again? When am I ever going to feel like energetic again? Um, Mm -hmm. And it was during that time when I decided that, you know, I needed to look into the thymectomy because they had also done another MRI and they found like a slight inflammation. Mm-hmm. Nothing, you know, no thymoma, nothing that they would say was, but it was enough. It was enough for right. them to say, okay, you know, this is the next step. Uh, and the timing was really bad because of COVID. I, mm-hmm. I, I made that decision like right before COVID happened. I, I remember I was in New York City in March meeting with the surgeon and then COVID happened. So I was like, okay, all elective procedures are canceled. Right. everything shut down. And so I didn't eventually get scheduled for the surgery until October of 2020. And I just listened to your episode about your thymectomy and and mm. I was you know when you talk about your family being there with you in the hospital, the hardest part about that surgery for me is that they wouldn't let my husband come in with mm-hmm. me. So right. once again, I was completely alone during the whole entire experience of having yeah. the surgery done.
0: I mean, we, I was so lucky because it was the, I don't want to say tail end of COVID because obviously we still have it, but it, it had kind of, they had just opened up the hospital. Yeah. They were still being pretty strict about the number of guests and, and how long they stayed. But I was almost always able to have a guest in the room and that made all the difference in the world. So I'm so sorry that you were alone. That, that is so hard to have to go through.
1: Yeah. I, I was just recalling. My experience of waking up from the surgery and being in excruciating pain, grasping around and searching around and asking for my husband, but, you know, visiting hours closed at six and I was the second surgery of the day. And so by the time I was out of recovery, you know, it was Uh like 5.15 and I just remember it hitting me like a ton of bricks that I wasn't wow. gonna see him until the next morning. Like I had to go through that whole entire first night without like anyone. Mm-hmm. So I, I was like, FaceTime him, FaceTime him, yeah. you know? I just yeah. was like begging the nurses. Cause it was so, you know, I was scared, you know? I, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a singer and I looked into the, you know, possible complications from the surgery. And one of the ones that I looked at was the nerve that goes between your vocal cords Uh And, you know, that, that nerve is, is near where the surgery is happening. And Uh one of the things I went over with the surgeon before was like, is there any chance I won't be able to sing again after this? I said, this nerve is here, you know, could it get damaged? And I had had a friend who had had surgery and I think her surgery maybe came after mine. I can't remember the time frame. But, you know, she was one of those people that had a rare complication in her surgery. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I just wanted to make sure. And he, he said, oh, no, you know, the robotic surgery, we stay clear away from that area. You know, maybe if it, we were going in from another angle, I could understand, you know, it being possible. But he, he, he assured me that, you know, that wasn't, wasn't right. going to happen, which I felt really happy about. So Um, that
0: that nerve she's referring to is called the phrenic nerve or phrenic. I think it's phrenic. And it it can get damaged. But now with the robotic surgery, which they are doing more and more, it it is rare, but it it was much more common with that sternectomy, which is kind of a a much more intense surgery. But yeah, that's so that's the one she's talking about.
1: Yeah. So, you know, during this time, Before I got pregnant, I would say I felt super capable of Mm -hmm. doing all the things I wanted in my life. When my symptoms were mild and were mostly controlled by Mestinon, you know, maybe I I stopped biking when my daughter, my my first daughter, my older daughter was like one or two. Because it got to that point where in order for me to go bike riding, I would need to put a bike seat on the back of my car, on the back of my Mm -hmm. bike. And I just was like, that's too dangerous. Like, I had had experiences getting off the bike where my leg would give out on me when I would try to step down off the bike because I'd just been biking and then it's too weak and then I would fall down. And so after falling down a couple times, getting off the bike, I was like, you know what, this is just too dangerous. But once again... I felt like I just went into like a denial phase where I just compartmentalized everything that I was giving up in my life and focused in on the things I could do. So I'm a performer and a singer. And so I was, I was acting, I was you know doing theater shows and I formed a band and I started writing music. But right. even writing music, you know, I was trying to play piano and during one of my gigs, my hands got so weak that I Mm. couldn't, I couldn't play. Literally, I'm in the Mm -hmm. middle of a song, and my fingers just got too tired. And so then, I just was like, okay, I guess piano's out. And I would try to play guitar, but bar chords require an incredible amount of hand strength. Mm. And so, my hands and my legs are where I'm affected most. And Mm. so that really affects little things. Like when Sean talked about not being able to like unload the dishes from the dishwasher, you Mm -hmm. know, I was like, oh yeah, that's my life too. And my husband is the one who unloads the dishwasher and I load it because it's easy to put things down from the sink into the dishwasher, but it's hard Mm -hmm. to lift things up from the dishwasher, you know?
0: It's so funny because that is the definition of but basically, when you expand your muscle, that's easy to do, but it's the contraction of muscle that requires the acetylcholine. So it's so funny to hear you say that because that is exactly how, you know, if you were to have told that to a doctor at the time, they would have been like, oh yeah, that sounds like MG because you can lower things, but it's picking them back or standing back up. But yeah, that is MG. So it's so funny to hear you say that. All right, so Sheila had a bit of a phone issue, but I think we're back now. We don't remember where we left off, so let's we're just going to start. We we had kind of talked about the thymoma or the thymectomy, but you were recovering. How did your recovery go?
1: My recovery was good. It mm-hmm. it you know, I had just the three small incisions, you know, everything went well. I went back 2 weeks later. And I was able to, you know, be cleared for exercise. I love swimming. Swimming has been my favorite exercise. And well, yeah. yeah, that's kind of I think where, where I was talking about was that what I've done with my disease over these years is really focus on the things I can do rather than the things I can't do. Mm-hmm. So when I stopped biking, I just started swimming, right? So I just yeah. go to the lakes, I go to the streams, I go to the pools, and I'm able to get out in the summer, get outside, exercise. I I joined the YMCA and I swim at the local Mm -hmm. pool, you know, just kind of really focusing in on what I can do.
0: Yeah. That's interesting to hear you say, because I was also doing a lot of biking and everything when, when I first got diagnosed and I stopped, but I had also done a lot of swimming previously, not a lot. And I was terrible at it, but I've been so terrified about starting swimming because I feel like if I can't, ride a bike i'm i'm horrified of going into the water and something happening so it's interesting that you say that swimming for you is easier so maybe i do need to give it a a shot
1: it's incredible what my muscles can do in the water you're it's gravity free (laughs) it's you're weightless in the water And so, you know, I would say Mm. I do some laps. I do maybe like four or five or eight minutes of laps, depending on my fatigue level that day. Uh. And then what I love to do is kind of like a yoga in the water, you know, like Mm -hmm. stretching, but with the water, like qigong or tai chi in the water. Mm. All of that allows me to move my body as if I was on land. But. I can do it all in the water. Right? I can right. do backflips. I can do front flips. Like hmm. I can do so much in the water that I can't do on land. And so Yeah. You know, I take my kids with me and and we're like a swimming family and it's an activity mm-hmm. that we do together. I just have to make sure I have enough energy to like get them dressed afterward, right? right? You know. Right. Getting my daughter dressed. My kids are now almost 10 and 5. And so the years where they're really little were were challenging, right? You know, I, right. I remember one of the scariest things that happened after I had my first daughter was I was carrying her up the stairs and my leg gave out on me. And luckily, mm-hmm. I was on the top step. So I was able to just lay her down as I fell. So it wasn't like, wow. you know, I was going down and we fell down the stairs. I was coming up and then towards the top. I my leg gave out and I just kind of like set her on the top step as I fell. Mm -hmm. But it was terrifying because you don't want to be endangering your kids by trying to take care of them. So before I got pregnant with my second child, I told my husband that we had to move to a one story. And that was actually another one of the experiences with myasthenia gravis that like sticks in my mind was we were living in like an old farmhouse and it was our first house that we had ever bought. But I had trouble mm-hmm. living in it because of all the stairs, right? It was so hard for me right. to do the household chores. I couldn't carry baskets of laundry up the stairs because I have to hold the railings when I walk upstairs. But we we dabbled around with the idea of getting one of those, the stair lifts, mm-hmm. right? And once again, my husband was working. And so I ended up doing this whole meeting alone. But the salesman from the chairlift company came over to like, Talk to me about what it would mean to get a chairlift, and I just remember mm-hmm. sitting there, like, you know, I'm 30, maybe 34 at the time, and just talking to this man about like putting in a chairlift, and his brochure is full of like old people, you know, and mm-hmm. I just like, oh God, like, it just made me feel horrible. Like I couldn't get him out of the house fast enough. I was just was like, get out of my house. Like I am not. Yeah. Like I don't want to be getting in and out of a chairlift every day at 34 years Mm -hmm. old. So we went around and looked for a one-story house, and I've been living in this house for six, five or six years now, and it's been so much better. So one of the things I wanted to tell you was I was listening to your podcast, which I recently discovered, and it's been so nice to kind of hear other people talk about their experiences. Mm -hmm. And then one of the first episodes I listened to was just the other day you had one where you talked about there being a big break between mm. one episode and the next episode. And when I heard that, yeah. oh, man, I I laughed and I said to my husband, I said, oh, you know what? That, you know, Jesse, he, was, he probably was too tired to keep going on it, you know, because he's got myasthenia gravis. <laughs> I said, it's exactly yep. what always happens is you have these plans, you have all these hopes and dreams. And then you get too tired to enact them and it's it's very yep. tough.
0: I mean, I I think I've said it before, but yeah, I kind of shot myself in the foot by starting a podcast immediately after getting diagnosed with a disease where talking became difficult. But yeah, it you know, there were a lot of reasons to for taking a break, but that was definitely one of them. And in that same episode, I was talking about learning to cope. It's hard to kind of accept the condition but not only was it difficult to record a podcast and and find the energy to do that, and in the middle of going through all the treatments and the medications and everything, but yeah, just taking that time, like you said, to to process everything, and and you you really have to be okay with it yourself before you can start talking about it with other people, because they really want to know what's going on and what is it, and you know how is it going, but. But yeah, it's it's funny because after that episode I had a lot of people that basically said like, No, 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 we're not mad at you. Like, we totally understand. Yeah. And but yeah, it's that I think that episode really resonated with a lot of people because I think almost every single one of us has probably had to go through a similar point in their lives to to kind of accept it. So
1: Yeah. So, you know, after my thymectomy, I would say I had an improvement over my lowest, lowest point, but Mm -hmm. it was still, I still felt like my energy level and my, you know, my ability to make plans was just completely out the window. Like Mm -hmm. I could only hang out with like super close friends that wouldn't be hurt if I canceled because I was too fatigued. And also- that just like were available spontaneously when I did have energy, right? Like, oh, I'm having a great day. Mm -hmm. Like, let's go, let's go to the pool and have a swim or what you guys want to come over. Like, I feel good today, you know, but that kind of like mid-level friend or the, you know, I I ended up taking my daughter to a birthday party for a friend and, and I ended up just sitting quietly at the table. Like I didn't have the energy to mix and mingle with the other parents. Like I just felt so exhausted. It was mm-hmm. a moment where I just felt like, wow, you know, something's got to change. And I think that happened yeah. before my thymectomy. I think that was just a little bit before my thymectomy. Yeah. Um, so with my thymectomy, you know, I chose to take the maximum amount of FMLA leave I could from my job, mm-hmm. even though I could potentially have been back, you know, three weeks later, I knew I needed the rest. Like I just really needed to rest and focus on like healing my body. And I took that time to go swimming and my kids were both in school and preschool at the time. So I kind of had the days to myself. And when I got back to work, you know, about nine, 10 weeks later, I made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to push myself anymore Mm -hmm. at all. And that, you know, my health was always going to come first no matter what. So that Mm -hmm. if I needed to take time off to go to physical therapy or to get a swim, you know, I found that exercising gave me endorphins, even though Mm -hmm. it's hard to exercise with myasthenia. Just that little bit of movement in the pool, you know, maybe I'm not doing long laps, but even just 10 minutes of something to get my endorphins flowing would give me energy for the rest of the day. And so. Mm -hmm. You know, about a year after my thymectomy, I still was frustrated with my energy level. I still felt like I was napping too much. I just constantly needed more rest than I felt was was how I had been when I had been feeling a bit better. And so mm-hmm. I ended up having a conversation with a Chinese medicine doctor, uh, acupuncturist, who had studied herbs and you know herbal treatments for Lyme disease and other chronic illnesses. And she mm-hmm. said to me, she's like, well, have you ever tried the autoimmune protocol diet? And I told her, I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I've tried everything. Cause I don't know if, if you're like this or anyone else out there that has myasthenia like this, but I'm that person that's like, well, there's a root cause. I'm gonna find mm. root cause and I'm gonna fix it. You know, like yeah. yep. I'm gonna, oh man, I tried gluten-free, I tried juice cleanses. I tried, mm-hmm. you know, everything I could do, but I did it just hodgepodge. I did it alone. I didn't have like, right. I didn't have a doctor kind of guiding me through it. I, and what would happen is, you know, maybe I'd feel better during the juice cleanse, but then I'd go back to regular life and start eating whatever my kids were eating again. and And then, you know, it just didn't last. And so she said to mm-hmm. me, well, this is going to be really really hard, but why don't you try this autoimmune protocol diet? It's been, you know, developed by women that have autoimmune disorders that have studied like the biochemistry of the immune system and how it's situated in the gut and all the different foods that can trigger inflammation and you know, just see how you feel and and it might make a big difference for you. And so, I decided, all right, I'm going to do it. And I had someone to help me. You know, she was willing to Mm -hmm. give me a recipe book, you know, text with me about it and just kind of be my cheerleader. And so I went out and I bought an Instant Pot, which allows you to cook healthy food more quickly. Mm -hmm. And she gave me this recipe book called the Autoimmune Instant Pot Cookbook. And Mm -hmm. I started doing this like super strict autoimmune protocol Eating regimen, which is basically like paleo, no grains, no carbs, no, you know, nothing that could possibly inflame your immune system. So I've cut out, Mm -hmm. you know, dairy and all the typical things that you cut out. But what was crazy was that one month into that like super intense regimen, I was so, my symptoms had subsided so much that I was able mm-hmm. to have whole days where I didn't have to take Mestin on at all. Like I wow. would just completely forget to take it and I didn't need it. And, and then one day I was in her office and I said, wait a minute. And I got down on the ground and I decided to try to stand up on my weak leg and I could do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For the first time in 13 years, I could stand up from the ground. And wow. I was like, holy cow, this is incredible. Like hmm. I was so... Like nothing had 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 Mm -hmm. such a strong impact on my ability to kind of feel normal. Wow. And yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I haven't touched on diets really at all because I am far from an expert. I'm also not really that familiar with the kind of alternative medicine side of things. But I I have seen a lot of posts on Facebook of people. that kind of have tried different things. And the one thing that I've always seen people recommend is that they say, just as long as you're gonna do it, just don't do it alone. And it sounds like you had the care of, of, of a doctor who was overseeing your treatment, but having someone that oversees that process and sees that the benefit that those things are having to you, I think that's super important. There, there are some people who try to self-treat mg and I don't necessarily agree with that because mg still especially in some of the more severe cases can be pretty pretty dangerous if you aren't getting the necessary treatment but you know your doctor it sounds like was was following along with you and very active in your your treatment right so that's awesome yeah that, that you were able to find that and
1: it wasn't it wasn't my neurologist it was she's mm-hmm. an acupuncturist yeah. and a Chinese herbal doctor but she, you know, she's a practitioner and this is what she does, you know, focusing on helping people. Mm -hmm. And it was, it made all the difference actually. Mm -hmm. And since that experience I had with her, um, I actually decided to resign from my other job and the autoimmune there, there's a couple of women. I wish I had the names of their books off the top of Mm -hmm. my head. It's, I think it's called the paleo approach. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, a, a doctor, I think her name is Sarah Ballantyne, but you know, I might have it totally wrong, but the book is called "The Paleo right. Approach," and it's all about, you know, how she cured her own autoimmune diseases. and it's like a thick textbook like book about you know mm-hmm. what's happening in your immune in your immune system in the digestive tract and the ways that, you know, eating things like you know, tomatoes and potatoes have something in them that is toxic. and it's in such a mm-hmm. small amount that most people can just eat it. But if you have an autoimmune disorder, you know, that can be triggering you to have more inflammation. So right. I made this decision that, like, you know, what I want to do is I want to be the person that people can have in their corner to help them through it. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I'm not the doctor, but like the 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 coach who has the knowledge and the information. So I'm not certified yet, but these autoimmune protocol. There's, gonna, there's a certification program to become certified in the autoimmune protocol diet so you can coach people through it mm-hmm. and help them. You know, so I would recommend to anybody that has myasthenia gravis, if you haven't talked to a nutritionist or mm-hmm. some a doctor that, you know, is more interested in integrating the holistic side, that it's, mm-hmm. it helped me more than the thymectomy did. And as wow. much as the mestinon was helping with my physical strength, It didn't do anything to deal with the like intense exhaustion that I felt where I just felt kind of detached from life and disconnected from my ability to like go about my. So since I, you know, adopted this kind of alternative nutritional approach to to treating myself. You know, I can make plans now. I mean, I I can like mm-hmm. put things on my calendar and I have a show tomorrow with my band, Sheila oh. and the Deep End. So, you know, today is mm-hmm. a rest day. I'm not doing anything today. Yeah. I'm because I know I need my energy for tomorrow. But I can feel confident that I'll have it tomorrow. You know that I can yeah. pack my gear, go to the gig, sing for 2 hours, you know, mix and mingle with yeah. the fans and and I just feel so happy to have that energy back and yeah. I'm grateful that, you know, I was able to look at a different way of treating it that has worked for me.
0: Yeah, I did look up the, the book that you were talking about. It's called The Paleo Approach. The author is Sarah Ballantyne, and it looks like you can get it used for about five bucks. It's on Amazon for 19. So anybody who's interested in that, if you're not finding a treatment that works to to maybe look into that and maybe we could get you in contact with Shigla uh, as well. But I did want to change gears for just one second, probably one of the last things we cover. But you had mentioned that during your first pregnancy, you had a little bit of a interesting story with your MG. Do you want to talk about that as well?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I came from an angle of wanting to have like a natural childbirth as much as possible. But when you are pregnant Mm -hmm. with MG, you're automatically a high risk pregnancy. And so they were, gotcha. they were monitoring me pretty closely. I had to have like a, ma- a maternal fetal medicine specialist see me throughout the pregnancy, hmm. and luckily everything seemed to be going really. Well. Everything was on track. You know, she was developing well, but I needed to deliver at a hospital where they had a NICU, and they told me this because hmm. they said that my antibodies could pass to the baby, and so any baby that's born to a mother with myasthenia gravis. They have to monitor the baby for at least 24 hours to make sure that the baby doesn't have myasthenia. So oh. I was just convinced that, you know, my baby was going to be fine. She was healthy and strong. So when I delivered at the hospital, you know, I, I ended up trying to have a natural childbirth for 21 hours. And then I just was like, I was so exhausted by the end of those 21 hours that my contractions were getting weaker and weaker. And so I decided mm-hmm. to take the epidural, take the pain medicine because, you know, I just felt myself kind of giving up. Right. So I was able to get yeah. a nap. Then I was able to have the baby naturally and they took her to the NICU. So I d- I wasn't able to spend that time with her when she was first born
0: mm-hmm.
1: because of my disease. And, you know, there were so many ways I was like, oh, man, you know, this is just really Getting in the way of of what of the of what how I wanted it to be, but I was still joyous. I was still excited that I had a baby, and I went up to the NICU a little while later, and I was able to be with her. So what happened to me was that my baby was big and healthy, and Mm -hmm. all the other NICU babies were, you know, trouble. They were in trouble. They were preemies. They were on all these different machines. So they waved us through. After the 24-hour window was up, you know, nobody was watching while I was breastfeeding her. Nobody was paying attention to us, and they let us go. Mm -hmm. And we got home from the hospital, and what I didn't know at the time, because I'd never had a baby before, was that she wasn't latching. She was weak. Her lips were weak. Her Mm -hmm. mouth was weak. And she actually did have neonatal myasthenia gravis. Wow. So, because of the timing of when she was born, I think she was born on a Thursday. And then we were mm-hmm. in the hospital till Saturday. And then I couldn't even call the pediatrician's office to get her in until she was seven days old. So, normally you want to have a baby back to the pediatrician by the time they're like four, you know, four days old, five days old. That's typical. Mm. But because of the weekend, she didn't get into the hospital until or into the pediatrician's office until she was seven days old. I had contacted the pediatrician in advance and I had told her I have myasthenia. You know, they're going to be screening her at the hospital to find out if she has neonatal myasthenia gravis. But, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but we'll come in and then you can check it out. So when we got there, she had lost 15 percent of her body weight. And she wasn't able to latch onto either a bottle or to breastfeed. And and we knew something was wrong because she was crying and crying and crying. Mm-hmm. And she was crying because she wasn't getting anything to eat because she couldn't suckle. And so we showed her how she was just gnawing on the bottle. And the doctor looked at us and said, you need to go home, pack a bag and drive to Albany and go to the NICU because mm. this is a serious problem. So yep. even though we had been delivered in a NICU <laughs> and we had tried to look out for this, they missed it at the hospital and they sent us home. So mm. we by the time they caught it for real, we had to go all the way up to the NICU. And, and it was very exhausting. I mean, it was like crazy to try to get her into the hospital through the ER. But it turned out that she did have my antibodies in her body and mm. she needed a feeding tube and they needed to get her back up to strength. And she she was seen by a team of the Albany Medical Center, which is a teaching hospital. Mm-hmm. So I'll never forget the day that they gave her baby Mestinon and then had her feed the bottle. There were like 12 neurology students in the wow. room because myasthenia is rare, but neonatal myasthenia is even more rare. Like something like 20% mm-hmm. of women that give birth to babies end up transferring the antibodies to their baby. So there was wow. this whole team of neurology students watching to see if she would be able to suckle the bottle after she was given the mestinon. And, mm-hmm. you know, it. it actually turned out that you know, she ended up getting stronger and stronger and her blood eventually replaced mine. So what happens Uh when babies get myasthenia is that they it goes away. It's transient because my antibodies don't stay in her forever. So within Uh two months, three months, she was totally, you know, back to normal. And we only had to stay at the hospital for about 10 days. And then we were released home But that was totally not what I anticipated when I had a baby, like Mm -hmm. a full-term baby, that we would end up going back up to the NICU for her to get fed through a feeding tube. So that was definitely something that, you know, happened to us as a family because of my disease as well.
0: Yeah. And how are they doing now? Is everything still okay with both of them?
1: Oh, yeah. She was, you know, cleared in full health. My kids are both very energetic. And, you know, I I appreciate them because they like they'll play tag with me, but like they know that I Mm -hmm. can't run. So they'll like run close to me so that I have a chance at swiping them. And then they just like jump away, you know, like we have a good time, you know?
0: Well, so that kind of finishes out all the stuff that you had told me in advance. Was there anything else that you wanted to cover or...
1: No, you know, I just wanted to say that I'm so grateful that you started this podcast because I have been kind of like living a life of invisible disease where I don't talk about it much. I don't know anybody else who has it. You know, I remember Mm -hmm. when my neurologist told me that there were support groups for people with MG. I just remember being like, Mm -hmm. oh, I don't want to be in a support group like the last thing yep. I want to do is sit around and listen to people complain about, like, their terrible symptoms. And I was telling my husband last night before, you know, he knew I was going to be on this show. I said, I remember very early on, I read a couple of blog posts. There were a couple of women that had written a blog post about having myasthenia gravis. And I remember being, like, so, like, afraid of what they were writing. Like, their symptoms were so severe right. that I just was like, I, I don't, I don't want to, like, mm-hmm. I just want to focus on the positive. But focusing yeah. on the positive for the past 12 or 13 years has meant that I have felt a little bit alone. You know, I have felt like I'm the mm-hmm. only person that has this problem in my world. And mm-hmm. finding your podcast and and hearing other people talk about, you know, their disease and, and just their day-to-day life. And especially in the episode where Michelle kind of gives all those amazing tips about like every day you have a choice about you know, your mm-hmm. symptoms are what they are, but you have a choice to just kind of make the most of your day and 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 have a positive attitude and, yeah. and just acceptance. So, you know, I remember just feeling like when I have a bad day, I get really depressed. And when mm-hmm. I have a good day, I get happy. I don't want to be living my emotional life based on my MG symptoms. Because right. it's hard for the people around you, you know, like it's not fair mm-hmm. that I'm moping around because I feel weak, you know, like, so that's really where I'm at yep. right now. And my disease is that even with the autoimmune protocol helping me so much, I still have those days where I'm just so weak that I just feel right. like, you know, all I can do is the basics, you know, all my pennies, right. like I have 10 pennies that day, you know, and all I yep. can do is yep. pack my kids' lunch and then sit around and save my energy so that when they get home, I can cook dinner.
0: Yeah. Well, and it, it's uh, it's interesting you say, you know, the first thing you did was kind of look for people who were basically similar to you online. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did the almost exact same thing. You know, we had done some research before I was diagnosed and it had come up a couple of times. I remember even sending a screenshot to my mom And I said, wow, look at this thing. This sounds like almost exactly what I have. But the first thing I did when I got diagnosed was go online and look for content, you know, look for something that I could consume. But basically, the only thing online was either, you know, research papers and, you know, nursing student training videos with like super science heavy stuff. And there was really nothing other than those, you know, Facebook support groups, which have been phenomenally helpful, especially to kind of read about what other people are going through. But there was really nothing to hear people or to watch people talk about their experience. And so that's that's part of the reason why I ended up creating the podcast was because I wanted to hear other people's stories and hearing one like yours is super fascinating because you have a a much more minor form but even the minor forms of mg can be unbelievably debilitating and so it's interesting to hear both sides of the story but yeah creating the podcast for me has been incredible but i think for other people as well to hear the stories has been has been really helpful oh
1: absolutely i mean it, it's like Finally, I feel like there's something that that I can kind of tune into to remember that this disease is a big part of my life. You know, yeah. it's like I I deal with it every day, but it it's almost like, you know, it's like you see everywhere you you go, you see you know the cancer ribbons and 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 I you know and I know mm-hmm. and, and and we all know so many people that have had cancer but right because our disease is so rare I remember when I had my thymectomy in the hospital one of the nurses that saw me had just been diagnosed with myasthenia gravis and she was treating oh, wow. me and I remember talking with her in the night at the hospital saying hey you know hey you know I I don't think you should be working 12-hour shifts anymore. Oh, it wasn't when Mm. I had my thymectomy. It was when I had my baby. She was a nurse at the hospital when I had my baby. And I remember she was so upset that she had this disease. And she's like, I'm just so exhausted by the end of every day. Like, I can barely move. Mm. And I took took her hands in my hands. And I said, you know, it probably is better if you try nursing somewhere where you don't have to be on your feet 12 hours a day. And I just was like, it's hard to admit that your life has to change because of a disease, mm-hmm. but you got to take care of yourself. And, you know, nobody's going to stop you from doing it. You're just going to wear yourself down. Right. And, you know, yeah. that's kind of been like the biggest thing that I've learned having myasthenia gravis is that we all are responsible for how we spend the energy we do have. And so mm-hmm. nobody can, can help you learn how to kind of rest and take, take it easy but if you don't value that then you're going to get worse and worse right e- even though, yeah. even though it's not progressive but it's like the more you rest mm-hmm. the better you can feel
0: right yeah and it's so fascinating to hear you you talk about people you know you see those cancer ribbons and you see all this stuff and i i my hope is that one day you know i i keep saying this and people laugh but that one day i will tell people i have mg Mycenia and and some the the response won't be what is that <laughs> or won't be is that like ms or you know you know i i just hope that one day we can kind of you know kind of get this in the limelight and and so that there won't be such you, you know a, a mysterious quality about it I had a kind of an interesting or a funny story the other day, I guess not funny, but I was getting my IVIG, which I do every three weeks. And a guy walks in and I he found out he had MS. And I sent a text to my fiance and I go, wow, this guy walked in with MS. I've never met anybody. You know, that's so rare. And I'm going on and I was like, "I I really want to talk to him. I want to know how it is. And And she goes, you know, you have MG, right? And I said, yes. And she said, you do understand that MG is infinitely more rare than MS. And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. But I guess it's true. I've never met even getting my IVIG. I've never met anybody in person that has MG. It's just, it's so rare that even many of the nurses and everything, they've only ever heard about it. Yeah. So, so all the nurses that have ever treated me, they go, they're asking me questions. Yeah. You know, I just hope one day, you know, it's it's something that you won't have to explain. And that's kind of my, my goal. It's
1: so cool. Yeah. You're yeah. just like, I'm just totally blown away that you took having a disease and turned it into this missing link. Like, I literally have searched over the years for like anyone <laughs> telling a story of having this disease because I love stories. Yeah. You know, you can tell by how mm-hmm. I love talking to you that just sharing what i'm going through and and what it's been like living with this disease it's just so healing to be able to just talk yeah. about it you know and yeah and to talk about it well, alone that, with my therapist yeah. doesn't really it's not the same as knowing that like other people that might have a similar mm-hmm. experience are also able to to resonate with it you know that's that's kind of the motivation right. for coming on the show is It's just to kind of come out into the open, even in my own life. Like yesterday, I went live Mm -hmm. on Facebook because I got myself a tricycle. And it's like Mm -hmm. the first time I've ever posted ever about having myasthenia novice, you know? Right. It's like, once again, I didn't want to focus on something that I consider a negative. But at the same time, if I'm not honest about what's really going on, then then how can I really get, you know, the support and understanding that we all need Mm -hmm. when we have an illness?
0: Yeah, Um, Sheila, you have a band. I want you to talk about your band for a second. How is that going?
1: Well, it's awesome. I I love I love the band, and I think that's the thing that kind of has kept me sane during this whole experience. Is I discovered Mm -hmm. the ukulele. I couldn't play piano. I couldn't play (laughs) guitar, but I can play a ukulele. Mm -hmm. And being able to pick that up about let's see, maybe eight years ago, I started writing songs. And it's been such a really great outlet for me to be able to kind of channel all my like experiences and feelings into the music and to be able to perform. And I've had to, you know, I've had to space out my gigs. I can't, you know, go on tour and perform every night like a big rock star would. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, we play like rock and roll music that's very soulful and dancey. And in 2019, Mm -hmm. I put out an album called Has To Be Real. So if anybody has yeah. any streaming platform, Apple Music, Spotify, anywhere, you just look up Sheila D has to be real and throw on the music mm-hmm. and know that somebody who has a chronic illness is still doing what she loves. That's my that's my absolute yeah. favorite thing in the world is to write and perform music.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to be honest. I was listening to it on my way to work yesterday. And I liked it so much, I put it back on on my way home. I do enjoy it. But so where can people find you, your band, you, you know, wherever? You
1: can find me at Sheila D. Music. That's Sheila D. E. E. Music. And I have on Facebook, you can find me at Sheila and the Deep End because that's the name of my band. So any streaming platform will have the album, Sheila D. Has to be Real. And you can contact me through Facebook, Facebook Messenger, or through the website. And um, I'd love to hear from anybody that listens to the music or just wants to know more about the alternative autoimmune protocols, diet, and how my experience has been with that. I'd be happy to get in touch with anybody after this uh, airs.
0: Yeah. Well, awesome. Sheila, I appreciate you so much for coming on. Again, for those who are listening, you know, I highly recommend you check out her stuff. She also has recently joined our Facebook group at My Myasthenia Podcast. So if you wanted to get in touch with Sheila, it sounds like you can do that. If you wanted to find her, you could probably message her straight from there or any of the channels that she just mentioned. So this has been incredible. I love doing these interviews. I would love to do more. So if you're listening and if you're interested in doing an interview like Sheila, just send me a message. I would love to have you on. But Sheila, thank you so much for joining us. This has been incredible. So and I really appreciate it. So, yeah, yeah, thank no you. problem.
1: It's been it's absolutely been my pleasure. You're super awesome for doing this.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. All right. Well, have a good one, Sheila. Bye. Okay, so that is going to be all for today's episode. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, That interview with Sheila, I think, went very well. Obviously, today's episode was just a little bit longer. Hopefully, you all didn't mind. But I do want to remind everyone again one more time that if you are listening to this in December of 2022, our event is officially live. So again, feel free to head over to mymyasthenia.com. Uh, where you can find all the info on how to register again my name is jesse I thank you all for tuning in and we will see you all next time